Well, when I was 21, uh, that was a while ago now, some people were saying, oh yeah, we're in the 21 club, you know, just earlier today, uh, about an hour or so ago, and I was like, well, I'm in the 31 club. When I was 21, uh, I got a really awesome present. A friend of my dad's, who was a pilot, and he bought me a present. Uh, the present was a four-hour flying lesson. Uh, so I went up in a little six-seater Cessna, and there I was, sitting in the cockpit of the plane. He kind of did the hard work. You know, he fired up the engine, and, and he got the thing rolling, and all that sort of stuff. Um, he got it up in the air, and then he said, all right, Steve, your turn. He had his little wheel, you know, not a wheel. I don't know what they're called. You know, those little doobie things. And I had one of them. I was sitting right next to him. And he just said to me, all right, Steve, go. Your turn. Take it for a spin. It was amazing. It was really cool. You know, the smallest of movements uh, would make the plane veer left or to the right or up or down. And I was, I was pretty frantic. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and he was always there, like, just in case I did something ridiculous and stupid. He wasn't going to let us crash. He had total control over the whole situation. But one of the things I remember most clearly... Uh, of, of all the things, apart from the little movements and that sense of, yeah, I'm in control, though it really wasn't, was actually the view. Uh, the view from the cockpit was incredible. Uh, I've got a little picture. Whoop, wrong way. I always go the wrong way. Every week. Where are we? Here we go. This isn't the actual picture, but this is a view from a cockpit. You know, you can, you can see everything, can't you? Uh, Every other time I'd been in an aeroplane, I'd always been in economy class. Uh, you know, I don't have enough money to fly business. But even if, if you're in business or first class, uh, the view that you get from those are always like this. You know, It's kind of limited. You can't see that much. And, and even then, it's all kind of blurry. But the view from the cockpit, right, the view where you can see absolutely everything with such clarity... It's amazing. I don't think I'll ever forget that moment of flying that plane and just seeing everything so clearly. I mean, it's good to see things clearly, isn't it? Uh, For those of you in the room who are wearing glasses, uh, you would know how good it is to see things clearly. A friend of mine, uh, he wears glasses and, I don't know, they're really thick glasses. You know, so those guys who wear really thick glasses. You reckon he can't even tell the time on his alarm clock which has got you know those big letters, unless he's got his glasses on. It's good to be able to see things clearly. If you don't have glasses, maybe you could relate to those cold winter mornings where your car is kind of, you know, you've got that windscreen fog or ice built in and you're trying to drive and you're doing that weird thing with your hand and you're just about crashing. To be able to see clearly, it's so important, isn't it? I think that's what we've started to be doing as we've looked at this book of Revelation. Uh, We've started to see clearly uh, the world and what God is doing in the world and what where we fit in the world and where Jesus fits in the world. Uh, Back in chapter 1, when we looked at it a couple of weeks ago, uh, we saw that vision of Jesus after he died on the cross for our sins, after he rose for our hope, and then he ascended into heaven. We saw that vision of the ascended Lord Jesus sitting in that powerful seat right next to God, his Father. Uh, Jesus is reigning and ruling over the world. That's what we saw. 
And we saw that he is mighty and merciful in the way that he reigns and rules. Uh, Last week, as we looked at chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we heard that assessment of the churches that Jesus gave. Jesus spoke his word and he spoke about what he thought the churches were doing and how they were going. Uh, What he did then was he encouraged people like us, uh, Christians who are the church, he encouraged us in our faithfulness to keep being faithful, to be zealous for him and his kingdom. Uh, And at the same time, he showed us the eternal importance of enduring uh, despite persecution. Uh, You can imagine our brothers and sisters around the world at the moment who need to hear that message, to endure despite persecution. And now tonight, tonight as we come to chapter 4 of Revelation, we're actually shown another vision, uh, a vision which continues all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is actually two visions, uh, chapters 1 to 3 and then chapters 4 through to 22. A lot of people kind of balk at the book of Revelation. They think it's very complex, uh, that it describes maybe all these unfolding time periods and no one can really work it out. Uh, But maybe I'm being naive, but I think it's actually a reasonably simple book uh, to understand. See, what the book of Revelation does, uh, particularly in chapters 4 all the way through to 22, is it describes only one time period. It describes what the Bible calls the last days, which are now. Uh, The last days are the time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when he will return. That's the time frame. And that's what the whole of the rest of the book of Revelation describes. The time between when Jesus ascended and before he will return and usher in the new creation. Here's a pretty simple overview of the rest of the book of Revelation. Uh, The vision starts, this vision that we'll look at tonight, it starts with John uh, seeing what is happening right now in heaven, in chapters 4 and 5. Uh, then it goes on to describe what's happening on the earth uh, in chapters 6 to 20. Uh, in these chapters, what you see is that it's the same time period, but different things are described in terms of what's going on. Uh, so you see there in the first few chapters, John takes, uh, he describes that there will be tyranny in the world. There will be things like sickness and famine, things that we see going on. Uh, Then he takes a few chapters to describe that there'll be chaos in the world, things like natural disasters. He then takes a few chapters to describe that believers will be persecuted in the world. And then he takes a few chapters to describe that there will be destruction of all evil in, in the end before Jesus finally returns in chapters 21 and 22 and ushers in the new creation. That's kind of, that's kind of the big overview. Uh, Jesus ascends into heaven. Uh, he is absent from us physically, but he sent his spirit to be with us. And in these last days we see tyranny, chaos, persecution, before finally destruction of all evil when Jesus ushers in his new kingdom. This is what the book of Revelation does. It reveals to us truth. The truth of what is actually happening right now in the world. I mean, when you just look at those things that are happening in verses 6 to 16, it's exactly what we see going on, isn't it? Sickness, famine, death, persecution of believers, natural disasters. This is reality. 
This is what Revelation describes. It just reveals reality to us. It gives us God's perspective on it. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're just going to concentrate on chapter 4. Uh, we'll get to chapter 5 after Rethink Week. But tonight in chapter 4, what we see is a marvellous vision. Uh, we see a vision of heaven, of what's happening in heaven right now, where God is. Uh, we walk through an open door and we walk with the Apostle John and we see what he sees. We see the one who is in charge of absolutely everything. In verse 1, uh, Jesus, with his loud trumpet voice, he says to John, he says, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Uh, the after this there is simply John saying um, that after seeing that first vision of Jesus with his words to the seven churches, after that, we'll now come and see this, come and see this vision. Uh, what he sees is that there's an open door into heaven and we, like John, uh, we get to come in and we get to see. And what we see is we see, firstly, a throne room. And it is a glorious view. There's lots of pictures. There's a lot of imagery. It might look a little bit weird and scary, but we'll work our way through it. Because what we see tonight is we are ushered through this door into heaven. We see what is happening right now in heaven, in the presence of God, things that we can't ordinarily see. So what is it that we see? Uh, well, firstly, there on your outline, we see that there is a glorious king. In chapter 4 and verse 2, John sees a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. They have, there, verse 3, they have the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Uh, Jasper and Carnelian, if you don't know, they are precious, dazzling stones. Uh, they were the very precious ones back in the first century, more precious than diamonds. And what that gives us, this Jasper and Carnelian, when we see that they are around the throne, it gives us a sense of splendour, a sense of majesty, a sense of glory. Uh, what else do we see? There's, there's a rainbow around the throne. The rainbow around the throne, it reminds us of God's promise after the flood, doesn't it? It reminds us of, of God's mercy, that he would never again judge the world like he did back then. The rainbow, it says, resembles an emerald, uh, which is a bit of a challenge to the imagination. We go, well, is it a green rainbow? What's going on? It's a little bit hard. But the overall effect is kind of this rich combination of mercy and awe and beauty. Whoever it is that's sitting on this throne, well, they are a glorious and a merciful king. Uh, secondly, what we see is that this king is being worshipped. Uh, there in verse 4, there's 24 thrones around this centre throne. There's 24 thrones and there's 24 elders and they stand for the people of God. Uh, there's the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. That's a bit of a summary way of saying all of the Old Testament people of God and all of the New Testament people of God, uh, they're all there together and they're worshipping this king. All of God's people worship God's king because God is the king. Uh, they're dressed in white. 
Uh, they're dressed in white because they've been made pure, they've been washed clean of their sin. And the other thing they have is they have crowns of gold. They have their own crowns. Why is that? Well, it's because God's people exercise God's rule. They reign with him. Thirdly, what we see uh, about this great and merciful king is that he's also the judge of the earth. Uh, There in verse 5, you see, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Uh, This imagery, if you know your Old Testament, it reminds us of what happened at Mount Sinai. reminds us of when God gave his law to Moses. It reminds us that God is to be feared, that he's not a God to be taken lightly. In verse 6, uh, we see seven lamps blazing, and we're told there that these are the seven spirits of God. Uh, the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit, as I think the better translations put it, they stand for God's Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. And the image there, the image of this spirit, is blazing. It's similar to the eyes of Jesus back in chapter 1, indicating that he sees all things. See, the Holy Spirit here is the spirit of judgment. Uh, The one who you might remember in John 16, the Holy Spirit is the one who Jesus sent to convict the world of sin and guilt and righteousness. See, what we have firstly in this first little vision of the throne and what's surrounding it, what we see in heaven is a picture of our God. Uh, We see God enthroned as a mighty king. We see God being worshipped as king. And we see that God is also the one who will judge all the earth. As we keep moving, uh, what we see is that there's actually something else in the throne room. Uh, It's not just all about God. There's something else going on. There's another image. In verse 6, Uh, You can read there, it says, Also before the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. This is a fascinating image uh, in the Bible. Uh, The sea uh, in Revelation in particular, and in the Bible as a whole, the sea always stands as a symbol for chaos and evil and sinfulness. Uh, You might remember the story of when Uh, Jesus uh, cast the demons out of that man and they went into the pigs and the pigs uh, with the demons in them ran into the sea. You probably remember that story from the Gospels. Uh, The demons, why did they run into the sea? What's where they belong? Uh, It's the symbol of evil. As you keep reading through the book of Revelation, you notice that wherever the sea turns up, there is evil Going on, in chapter 13, the dragon stands beside the sea. Later in chapter 13, the beast comes out of the sea. In chapter 15, there's a a sea mixed with fire. And then finally, in in chapter 21, when, when you get that great picture of the new creation coming down to earth, when Jesus returns, there is a big point made there that the sea is no more. The sea is gone. Uh, The reason it says that there is because the sea is a symbol for evil. And in the new creation, when Jesus returns and ushers in his kingdom with all his might, 
evil and sin and pain and death will be no more. They'll be gone. But here in chapter 4, as we look at what's happening right now, what we see is that in heaven, under God's reign, there's a sea. But what is it? Well, it's a sea of glass. It's clear as crystal. It is calm. Evil is calm before the reign of God. Uh, this symbolizes, uh, symbolizes for us that, yes, at the moment, evil does exist. You just have to look around the world to see that. Evil does exist, but before God and before his throne, it is contained and it is within his sovereign purposes. Uh, God's got evil under control and one day he will finally overthrow it. Uh, this mighty king you see, uh, he's not only the one who will judge, he's the one who right now controls all things, even the evil in the world. I wonder if you believe that. Evil is evil. Uh, God is not the cause of evil. But God, in his sovereign power, is able to use even the sinful and evil actions of men to bring about his good in the end. In the book of Genesis, you might remember the story of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, who, who was the favourite son of his father, and his brothers hated that. And they sold him and they, they threw him into a pit and they sold him to slave traders. Joseph goes down to Egypt and he has, under God's rule and reign, he has a very productive and successful life. He rises to be Pharaoh's 2IC, the second in charge of Egypt. And at the end of his life he confronts his brothers. He meets them again. And he says to them in Genesis chapter 15 verse 20, he says, for you, you brothers of mine, you meant what you did for evil, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be made alive. Genesis 50.20 So what we have here, this is the view from the cockpit, isn't it? This is the view where we actually step back and we get to see the whole thing. Yes, evil does exist. Yes, People do evil, and they will be judged for their actions. But yet at the same time, somehow, God in his might and sovereign power, he can use even the evil in the world to bring about that which is truly good, to bring about life, eternal life, for people. As we continue in verses 6 to 8, uh, we're introduced to some pretty weird-looking creatures. Uh, in verse 7, uh, the first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Uh, what's the point of seeing all these creatures? Well, the big idea here is that they represent all of creation. Uh, they kind of stand as the representative of each created being. In verse 8, what we see is that each of these four living creatures have six wings and they're covered with eyes all around them. Uh, that kind of look a bit weird, uh, but 
You know, in the book of Revelation, we get imagery, uh, not because it's meant to like look weird and we're meant to try and draw it, but because it's meant to communicate a point to us. Uh, they have wings, you see, so they can orbit around and revolve around this amazing king. Uh, they're covered in eyes so that they can see everything clearly. And most importantly, verse 8, look at what they say. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The four living creatures uh, which stand for all creation, they are constantly praising and worshipping God. They are worshipping this king because he is holy. He is completely different from everything else in all of creation. He is pure. He is sinless. He is holy. And it seems in verse 9 that whenever the four living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to God, which is always, they do it day and night, they never stop. Whenever they praise God, the 24 elders, well, they fall down and they worship God too. See there at the end of verse 10, the the elders lay their crowns before the throne. They take their own crowns off the head and they lay them down before the king, the one who is meant to be wearing the crown. See, they have some authority. We have some authority as God's created people. But our authority is from God. And so in the presence of God Almighty, God's people throw down their crowns. And they submit to him and his word. Uh, They bow their knee in humble allegiance to the king. Why do they do that? Why do they get all involved in this praise and worship of God? Well, it all comes to a climax in verse 11. Because they say there, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created. And have they been? See, why should God be worshipped? Well, because he's the king. Because he's the creator. Because he's the one who made us. He's mighty and powerful. He's the one who created the heavens and earth. He's, He's responsible for all the stars and all the planets in the sky. He's responsible for the mountains and the valleys and the birds and the fish for everything that you see. Most importantly, he's the creator of people. He created all people from all nations. It's all his handiwork. He is the creator. He's behind it all. He's responsible for it all. And so friends, because he's the creator, because he made us, because he made everyone, What that means is that everyone owes him their allegiance. Not just Christians, but all people. All people everywhere. Muslims in Saudi Arabia. Buddhists in China. You run-of-the-mill people in Bendigo. All people everywhere needs to bow their knee before their creator. Why? Well, one, because he made us. But two, because of what we've seen here, he will judge. The lightnings and the rumblings, the peals of thunder, 
the seven blazing lamps, the eyes that see everything, these images that have come up so far, they point to the fact that God, yes, he is the creator, but God, he is the judge of all creation at the same time. See, God will one day bring everyone to account for how they've lived as his creatures, whether they've given him praise and honour and glory, or whether they've just dived into the, to the sea of evil and swum around in it. God is the judge. God sees all, God knows all, and he will judge justly. He cares about right and wrong. He's grieved by the evil that is happening on this earth. It matters to him that his creatures beat each other up. It matters to him that these people destroy each other, whether it's physically with violence, whether it's with lies or slander whether it's with sexual immorality, God cares about these things. They grieve him, the evil in the world. He will one day overthrow it. Whatever is evil, God will judge justly. See, the picture we see here is that we have a powerful king. He's our creator and he's our judge. And seeing this reality, it changes things, doesn't it? When you see that clearly. In fact, maybe at this point, uh, the thing that we see most clearly is that there's a bit of a problem. Uh, you know those pictures where you kind of see where, where they say, spot the, spot the wrong thing in this picture? I couldn't find a good example, so you don't have one. Sorry about that. But you know those pictures, you know, kind of, what's wrong with this picture? You know, there might be a person in the front but then the tree looks like Godzilla or something in the background. You're meant to try and see the weird thing, that something that's not lining up right. It's like that ad that it goes with oh, the yeah. elephant or the... Yes! Um, we should have played... What was it, the ninja that's in the line? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so spot the problem. What's wrong with this picture? There's actually something wrong with this picture in Revelation 4, isn't it? I mean, if what I've said is true, if our understanding of this vision is correct, that this is what is happening right now, then there's a serious problem. Because the reality of this picture, well, it's incomplete. Uh, there's at least two things wrong with this picture. Uh, one problem is that all people everywhere, all of creation, don't worship God as king and creator and judge. Uh, we all ex- instinctively exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve created things instead of the creator, we don't all live for God and worship him. We so often live for our own selves and live for our own glory, our own comfort, our own pleasure. In Revelation chapter 4, well, it doesn't show this. Uh, That doesn't mean that this isn't reality. It just means that there's a difference between what happens in heaven and what happens on earth. It means there's a difference between what should happen and what is happening. Uh, There's a clash. But the second problem with Revelation 4 is, well, it's actually good news. Uh, It's good news because Revelation chapter 4 is actually only half of the vision. Uh, You really need to read chapter 5 to get the whole vision. Uh, We'll get back to that in two weeks after our Rethink Week. Uh, See, in chapter 5, there's someone who comes in to this throne room. There's someone who, who stands next to God, someone who's described as a lion, who is strong 
and powerful, but yet he's, he looks like a slain lamb. Uh, the person you see is Jesus. Uh, and because of what Jesus did, because of what he's done, because he was slain on that cross, in chapter 5, all the creatures in that throne room start to sing a new song. They sing to him who sits on the throne, that's the one who's been described in chapter 4, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Jesus starts to be included in that worship. See, when Jesus came all those years ago, he came to fix this broken picture. He came to do something that would realign this picture of heaven, which we've seen tonight, where God is worshipped and where God is glorified. He came to realign the picture of heaven with the picture of earth, where so few people worship and glorify God. And he did that by dying on that cross. See, when Jesus was on that cross, the sea of God's righteous judgment for evil fell on him. For those who put their trust in Jesus in this life, the sea of God's judgment on their sin is now calmed. It is like still glass, crystal clear, taken away. It will never hurt them again. See, God, in his sovereignty and power, He used even the greatest of evil, the greatest evil of all time, the death of his own son, to bring about the greatest good of all time, eternal life for those who put their trust in him. So right now, at this point in history, what do we see? Well, we see that as people put their trust in Jesus' death for them, as they lay down their crowns, as they stop living their own way and as they start living for God as their king, as they do that, well, the picture between heaven and earth starts to match up. It starts to be realigned. Now, the picture in heaven you see there in verse 10 is that God's people lay down their crowns before him and they worship God as king. Now, that's what God's people in heaven are doing right now. And that's what all people on every nation of this earth need to do. We all need to cast off our own crowns and let God rule our life. What does it look like to lay down your crown? Well, it means firstly uh, to give God all the glory and give him all the power and all the honour in your life. More specifically, it means submission to him as your creator and king. It means hearing his word and obeying it. I don't know the areas in your life that you're still hanging on to crowns where you don't want to submit to God's word. You would know those areas where you haven't yet heard God and heeded his word. I want to say, will you lay down those crowns? We submit to his good and kingly rule over you. Secondly, to lay down your crown it means humility before God who is the judge of the earth. It means coming to God in repentance and saying, yes, I have been wearing my own crown. I'm sorry. 
I know I've, I've ignored you, God. I know I haven't listened to your word. I know I've, I've rebelled against your word. I know I don't deserve to be in your heavenly kingdom. But I know that I can be because your son Jesus gave up his crown of glory. He gave up the crown of glory that he was wearing in heaven to come to this earth to be cured on that cross and wear a crown of thorns, a crown that symbolised the curse of sin that he took on for us. Have you done that? Have you cast your crown down in humble repentance before the King of all the earth? It's my prayer that as we go into Rethink Week next week, that we will see people do that for the very first time. That as they hear the word of God, as they hear of his goodness, he gave us his own son who died for us. That he's the creator, the almighty one, and the one who will judge. It's my prayer that they would cast down their crowns and that they would give their life in humble submission to him. Another thing I've been praying for is that you will join us in doing this. That you'll give up some half an hour sections during the week to give out hot chocolate, to have conversations so that we can see God's will on earth lining up with God's will and what's happening in heaven. How about a prayer for us? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision of you as our glorious Creator King. Father, we praise you for your might, for your power. But Father, we acknowledge that so often we don't praise you with our lives. We fall short in the way we live, in the way we reject you and your word and your good rule over us. But Father, I pray tonight that we would see afresh, that we would see clearly that Jesus' death on that cross takes away all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, so that we can be clothed in white, pure before you. Father, would you give us a zeal to share this good news of Jesus and what he offers us for eternity with our union. Father, would you send your spirit so that people come into your heavenly kingdom uh, through our words. Pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.